Let's stand because we want to honor this wondrous God who inspired his servant Asaph to pen Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I invite you to join with me in prayer before we continue looking at this passage. Father, we have already been singing to you. Uh, as we have heard your call to worship, we have already heard you. And so even still in the very middle of our time together, uh, as we are gathered around your word, we, we ask that you who are here with us would help us. Lord, um, even if we understand things with our minds, unless your spirit is involved, we will not truly be shaped by it. And so we ask that your spirit would help us as we gaze at your word, as we gaze at you. Would you please shape us and make us more like Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, I invite you to keep your uh, bulletins open to the passage, as I will, as, as often my custom, just kind of be working through this passage. And I don't know if you notice, but at the very top, it tells us that this is a psalm of Asaph, which probably means very little to you, but Asaph was kind of a big deal. He was the worship leader under David. So in other words, he was the Brent Stutzman over Israel, which means he's obviously a big deal. And so we should listen for at least that reason. But there's something even more compelling, I think, that would cause us to want to pay attention to the psalm especially, and that is there is a surprising, vulnerable honesty about these verses. Perhaps you noticed. Because here in these verses, Pastor Asaph himself, leader over Israel, is giving testimony to how he almost gave up on his faith. Perhaps you notice, I mean, the very first verse tells you where it lands. It says where he's ultimately going to go. But verse 2 really introduces where this psalm is taking us. Where it says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. About 10 days ago, my family, we were in Colorado, and we were hiking up a mountain there, and it was beautiful. But it was also a little scary because even though the path was fairly wide, on one end of it, the, the the drop-off was incredibly steep. And so anytime one of our kids, usually to taunt us, I think, we kind of get to the edge and kind of like jump around. Jennifer and I had to kind of like keep ourselves from having these images of our boys plummeting to their doom hundreds of feet below. It was, that's, you know, like that idea of stumbling. That's, that's what, what, what Asaph, that's the image Asaph has here. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I was on the edge of the cliff and I had almost fallen off. I had almost given up on God, is what he's saying. He's saying, I had a crisis of faith. I'm wondering, have you ever found yourself in, in maybe what you could call a crisis of faith? Where the things that you once took for granted as true suddenly feels uncertain impermanent, or maybe as it even continues, you find yourself wondering, am I, am I on board with any of this? Or you wonder, maybe, maybe you're just going to give up on this whole Christianity thing. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe some of you even right now are feeling that way. You know, sometimes crises of faith are caused by some cataclysmic event. We, we have something that happens to us that just seems senseless. And we're overcome with grief and we cannot understand how if God is real, this can all fit together. And so we just kind of, kind of give up on things. But other times when we experience these crises of faith, it, it kind of can creep up on us. It's not just one thing. It's this slow, gradual erosion of our confidence until maybe at some point we just kind of wake up and realize, I'm not sure I believe any of this anymore. That's what seems to have happened to Asaph. There was not any major thing that happened to him that he identifies here. No, the, the force that leads him to this place where his feet are almost slipping is something smaller but probably more powerful, and that is envy. I mean, that's what he says, for I envied the arrogant. 
Perhaps you've seen a few years ago, the, remember the old Spice commercial where there's this handsome guy who's like, look at your man, now look at me, now back to your man again, now back at me, sadly your man is not me. Does anyone remember that one? Okay, hopefully I'm not just completely making a fool of myself here, but that's, that's kind of what's going on here with Asaph. He is looking at the life of people who have pretty much forgotten about God. And he's looking at his own life, and he's looking at their life, and he's comparing it with his own life again, and he's realizing to his surprise that he wishes he could be them. That, that their life actually looks much more desirable, and he feels jealous. And this jealousy, it starts kind of eating away at his soul. We, we, we know how jealousy can work, can't we? If you ever been aware that you're envious of someone, you realize it kind of distorts the way that you see things, right? And, and that's, that's what's going on here. He says, I, you know, when we get to verse 4, notice how he describes these people that he's seeing. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. And then he goes on like another seven verses describing them. It's almost like he's been stalking them. He's watching them so much. Before eventually he concludes, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, no one is like this. Like there is no one who is completely free of care. There is no one who never struggles. But that's how he is seeing things right now. He has these glasses of envy on, and it's distorting him, and it's making him so disturbed. And meanwhile, verse 14 alludes to the fact that his life is just hard right now. And he doesn't understand why this is happening the way it is. I mean, shouldn't it be that if you love God, and if God loves you, that your life should be easier? And wouldn't you think that if, if people say like these wicked people do, verse 11, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Wouldn't you think that if that's how they approach life, that their life would be harder? That, I don't know, it would just kind of devolve into like debauchery and depression until suicide? Isn't that how it's supposed to be? And of course, sometimes that is what happens. But sometimes, and we know people like this, people who seem to have completely forgotten about God, it's just not even on their radar, and yet their lives seem easy and effortless. I mean, does it ever bother you that oftentimes it seems like following God makes life harder? Well, it certainly bothers Asaph. As for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. You can see, you can sense that he's just on the precipice. For a moment, here's the conclusion that he draws. Verse 13, surely, surely, this is a conclusion, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's not wondering whether or not God is real. There's no sense of those doubts for Asaph. He's wondering if God is worth it. Verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. Why do I do this if it's all worthless? 
His feet had almost slipped. He was this close to plunging into faithlessness. But we know his feet don't slip. He already tells us that in very verse 1. He says, this is where I'm going. Surely, so here's the other surely. Like he says at this moment, surely, my, and in vain this is this, but at the very beginning he tells us where he's really going to go. Surely God is good to Israel. And so that raises the question, how is it in this crisis of faith that he's able to move from almost falling off the cliff because everything seems worthless to being able to say heartfeltly, surely God is good. And that's what brings us to the heart of this passage. I think the most important verses. And what we see here is that the only way to see God rightly is by being with God. The only way to see God rightly is by being with God. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Well, first we see what, what it doesn't mean. Because as Asaph struggles and he fights, he decides he's going to figure this out. You know, verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, he's, he's pulling back, he is trying to figure this out. He, you know, he's trying to maybe look at it from different ways. How could God be working right now? Why is God doing this? Maybe if I think really hard, it's going to all make sense to me. But it doesn't. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I think Asaph is actually telling us something really important here, and that is when you are in a crisis of faith, you cannot think your way out of it. I mean, that's, I think sometimes for some of us who are more intellectually bent, that is our tendency. If we are feeling like we're not sure any of this is true, our inclination is just to pull back. Okay, for a while, I'm not going to be at church anymore. I'm not going to be praying. I'm not going to be reading God's word. I'm not going to do any of that until I have figured this all out and have decided whether I really believe this. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. Because you see, God is not some sort of geometrical proof that needs to be solved. He is not some riddle to which there is some answer. He is not someone that we can get our minds around. We can't figure our way into understanding God. And so we can't figure our way out of a crisis of faith just with our own minds. I mean, isn't that what the story of Job teaches us? Some of you remember the story of Job. Job, who was a righteous man, experiences incredible suffering. And it brings him to a crisis of faith. And what do his friends do? His friends try to figure it out for him. Well, it's because of this. Job, you must have clearly done something wrong because this is the way that God works. And they're completely wrong. And if you read it from the beginning, you know there is no way that any of them are going to really understand what God is doing. There is no way that they, with their minds, will simply be able to figure their way out of this crisis of faith. Because that's not how it works. But if that's not the way out, when we can't understand how it fits together, just thinking it through doesn't fix it, then what is? Well, look again at what verse 16 says. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. 
until I entered the sanctuary of God. It's not clear whether he's speaking literally of when he actually walks into the tabernacle courts or if he's speaking figuratively, but whatever he means by this, it's clear he's saying, this was a problem until I drew near to God. Until I turned my focus towards God, until I spoke to him, until I listened to him, until I was with him. And then everything changed. We can even sense that change if we are reading the whole psalm in one sitting like we did just a moment ago. Perhaps you noticed there is such a different change in focus. You know, the very first dozen verses or so, he has tunnel vision. There is only one thing he's looking at. He's looking at those perfect-looking people, muscular, thin, happy, and that's all he's seeing, and it's not changing the way he's feeling. In fact, the more he's looking at them, the further away from God he feels, and that makes sense when we think about it. Because if you're struggling to feel close to God, if you're struggling to know whether God is real, if all you're looking at is other things, there's no way you're ever going to see things differently. I'm reminded of what a mentor of mine said in college. He said, for the longest time he found that when he was struggling with things, prayer seemed to make things worse for his soul. Because when he would come to God in prayer, he'd say, God, this is the way things are, and isn't it awful, and isn't it terrible? Amen. And he realized that was never going to lift his gaze. That what he needed to do was to move from the way he was feeling to look up to God and to remember who God is and to speak to God and only then would his soul be renewed. And that's, that's what we have in this shift as well. After he says, and then I entered the sanctuary, there is a new phrase that starts cropping up and it's just two simple words with you. Now that's hidden a little bit because the translation translates it differently in different places, but, but we see it in verse 22 when he says, I was a brute beast, literally as I was a brute beast with you. Verse 23, I am always with you. Verse 25, earth has nothing I desire, literally again, nothing I desire with you. And then verse 28, though it's using different language, has the same idea. As for me, it is good to be near God. Lord, it is good to be with you. With you. With you. That's the shift. He enters the sanctuary. He's drawing near to God, and now he is with God. And that changes everything for him. His way out of the crisis of faith only comes as he reconnects to God. You see, you and I were never, ever meant to figure out this life on our own. And we can't. Doing that is kind of like trying to drive a car without an engine. A number of years ago, I was on a mission trip to Mexico, 
And this amazing thing was happening. We were driving, and driving in Mexico is always an experience. But we were driving, I think it was just in Tijuana, and there was this time where this big van suddenly stalled, like lights were flashing. And I don't know how this happened, but suddenly, like 12 people from all sorts of cars just quick jumped out of their car, and without anyone talking to each other, they just started pushing this thing. It was this amazing cultural difference. But even as they were trying to push this car that was in the middle of the road out of the way, you could see the person who was driving struggling, because they had no power steering, and so it's like taking 30 pounds of weight just to turn a little bit and put their foot in the brake in the right time. And you realize this car was never designed to be driven without an engine. And that's you and me. We are not designed to be driven without an engine. We are not designed to function without a connection to God. You and I are in some ways less than human as long as we are disconnected from God. We're not able to love the way we were designed to be. We're not able to experience joy the way we were designed to be. And you and I aren't able to see things the way we were designed to see apart from God. And Asaph himself comes to recognize that. When he's now with God and seeing things differently, look at what he says about himself In verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He is saying, when I was disconnected from you, I was less than fully human. Isn't that interesting? You know, people are always asking the question, what makes us different from animals? They say, is there a language? Is there a capacity for rational thought? Is there ability to love, experience beauty? All of those are important, but I want to say that's not the thing that fundamentally separates us from animals. What fundamentally separates us from all other animals is our capacity to know God, to have fellowship with him, to love him and be loved by him. All those other things flow from this relationship. And so you and I are not fully human apart from God. And that's why the way out of the crisis of faith for Asaph was through the sanctuary. The only way to be able to see God rightly is by becoming completely human, by being with God. And once this happens, once Asaph is somehow able to be in connection with God and seeing things through the eyes of God, he sees the very same details, but he sees them now completely differently. He looks at those beautiful people, and now, rather than feeling envy, he feels pity. Because he realizes that these rich and famous people who are without God, what they are experiencing right now is all they will ever have that they have no hope, that this is it for them. Verse 19, he says, how suddenly they are destroyed. I'm reminded of a statement that one of my profs made when I was in seminary that stuck with me. He said, today's poster boy is tomorrow's worm food. I know it's kind of brutal, but it's true. Today's poster boy is tomorrow's Worm food, or, or this says things almost as, as starkly, verse 20, when he says, they are like a dream when one awakes. This morning, when I woke up, 
I woke up remembering that I had just had some sort of dream. Maybe you know this feeling where you remember there was something going on and of course at the time it felt real, at the time you were invested, but the more I tried to think about it when I was waking up, the less I could remember. That's oftentimes how dreams are. They saying that's the way of these people who are beautiful. It's like a dream when one awakes. Right now it feels so real, but there's going to be a day when daylight comes and it's all going to be dissipating and nothing will be left. And that's tragic. They're not to be envied, they're to be pitied. And not only as, as Asaph is with God does he see those other people differently, but he sees his own situation differently. Verse 21 again, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. That is a beautiful sentence. Think of what he said at the very beginning. He said, my feet had almost slipped. He felt like he was going to fall. He was sure of it. But now he realizes, actually, I was wrong. God, you were always with me. You were holding me by my right hand. Now, as you and I, as we are seeking to follow God faithfully, there are times that God can feel so distant so disconnected, where we feel so far from God, I want you to know that that's actually not what's going on. No matter how far away from God you might feel, he is near. He is so committed to you that he gave his son to die for you. Know that he is near. Know that what David, what Asaph says here is true for you. You are constantly with me. You are Hold me by my right hand. Asaph now sees that. And not only does he see others and himself differently, but most importantly, he sees God differently. Verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is fundamentally the thing that takes away any envy because when he looks at these other people, he realizes that the great tragedy is that they do not have God. They're not able to experience the beauty of God, the hope of knowing God, the meaning of knowing God. And that is to be pitied above all else. And yet he can. Asaph does know God. And he has come to realize that in God is the answer to the deepest of his longings and the fullest of his desires. You know, when he says, earth has nothing I desire beside you, he's not saying that he's not going to grieve. He's not saying that there isn't suffering in earth. He is saying he's come to understand that in the end, all that God is and all that God has for him will be enough. That the beauty of God and the grace of God will satisfy him fully. So that in the end, he will be able to say, as he says at the very beginning of this passage, surely God is good. This is what he sees now. 
And it's all because he has moved from pulling back to understand things and he's drawn near. Because we cannot see God rightly until we are with God. And so here, I think, is what Asaph is wanting to tell us. And more importantly, here's what I think God has for us. If you, right now or sometime in the future, find yourself in in a struggle of faith, whether you call it a crisis of faith, or maybe for some of you, you're not even sure to begin with what you think about all of this. I think what God is saying to us is that even if we are tempted to pull back, the only way out of this is by leaning in. That is, rather than trying to remain objective and disconnected, we have to draw near and allow God to show himself to us. Now, I realize for some of you that might seem like I'm cheating, right? Like I'm I'm kind of stacking the deck, basically saying, for you to believe, you're going to have to believe. And wait a second, I have a whole lot of questions that are troubling me, and I don't think I'm going to be able to take any steps forward until I'm able to kind of work through those questions. And And I want to say, fair enough. One thing that is clear to me in Scripture is that God does not say, shut off your minds and just believe. He engages us. And a lot of the questions that you are struggling with are are important questions that need to be dealt with. And speaking personally as someone who's had to kind of work through some of these things, I know the need to wrestle. So let me kind of just give this standing invitation to any of you. If any of you want some time to just kind of wrestle through some questions with someone, I will be happy to take you out for a beverage of your choice. If you're under 21, that's probably a milkshake. And just think this through with you. And I promise to be honest and I promise to be respectful as we work through these questions together. But I want to say ahead of time that even if you find answers to whatever questions trouble you, and I believe there are answers to those questions, they're not going to be enough. Just solving some of these questions will never be enough until you draw near and allow God to open your eyes. The only way out of doubt is not by pulling back, but by leaning in. Because we are not meant to figure things out apart from God. And so here are three things, just kind of straightforward suggestions of what it means to lean in. First, if you are struggling with faith, you need God's people. You need to be here on Sunday morning, even if sometimes it feels lifeless, because to have other people of faith standing beside you saying that my comfort in life and death is that I'm not my own will strengthen you and help lead you in the right direction. You need to talk to people and open up to the struggles you're having and let them pray for you. Perhaps you even need to be part of a community group or discipleship group. God gives us each other to help us even in those times of doubt. Secondly, you need to be praying. You might feel like you have nothing to say to God, and that's okay. Even if it's just, God, I'm not sure you're there right now. And frankly, right now, I'm not sure I want you to be there right now because I'm not really happy with what I feel like about you. You should say that if that's what's going on. Even if you're afraid that a lightning bolt will strike you, I promise it won't. Because what you're doing is you're taking who you are and you're bringing it to God and you're calling out to God And God answers. And thirdly, not only do you need God's people, not only do you need to pray, but you need to look at God. This is what we see more than anything else here. Our eyes get so focused on the things around us, and of course we're never going to grow. And what we need is to gaze at God himself. And what that means for us, this side of Jesus' coming, is you and I need to look at Jesus. 
Because in Jesus, we see the face of God. And so I encourage you, if you are struggling, just to take some time and to read one of the Gospels. Read the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John. And maybe you're like, hey, I've been to Sunday school. I know all the stories. Yeah, that's okay. Do it again. But this time, rather than, than looking to say, okay, what am I supposed to do? What are these things telling me to do? Don't, don't answer those questions. Just look and say, who is this Jesus? Just look at him. Just look at God. Because the only way out of a crisis of faith is through the sanctuary. Now, I can't promise that will be immediate. If there's one thing I've learned in following Christ for the years that I have, it's that my timing is way different from God's. And a lot of time, he calls on us to wait when we want to just go. But I will say, because of what I believe Scripture promises, that if you call out to God, if you look at him, if you let his church enfold you, he will lead you to a place where you also will be able to say, surely God is good. I'd like to give us even now an opportunity to spend some time turning ourselves towards God. If, if you are in that situation where you don't know where you stand, if you just need to say, God, I don't even know, but could you please show yourself to me? If, if you find yourself someone who is right now feeling the need to confess things to God, spend this time in confession, but let's just respond as God speaks by speaking back to him. And we'll take a couple minutes in silence, and then I will lead us in prayer. Having now spoken in the silence of our hearts to God, I invite you to join with me in confessing our need to God together. And I'll begin, if you could respond with the print is bold. Holy and merciful God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. Together, you alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all that we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. And hear the good news of the gospel. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. 
I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Thanks be to God. 